Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Julian, I noticed that you are in a Panera Bread. I am in a Panera Bread. And I would just like to say, and I'm curious, I'd like to take a poll of, of the room, the virtual room, that Panera Bread is the pinnacle of its niche. Like I love Panera bread. I think it's hugely underrated. I would happily eat a Panera bread every day for lunch. When, when at my law school, we do our workshops and we rotate through the, the catering options and it's Panera day. I'm always delighted. I'm a huge Panera stand. Wow. And I'm just curious, am I, am I the only one? Cause I feel like when I, when I go on at, at length like this, people give me the look that Quinta is currently giving me, which is <laughs> no. you are kind of hinged about your love for Panera. What's going on here? No, no, I was expecting you to go after Panera. I, I, I'm awesome. also, a, yeah, I'm also a Panera fan because uh, I spent a lot of time in the Panera bread of my hometown in high school because it was the only place <laughs> that would not kick you out if you didn't order anything after like three hours. So it was a great place to go after school to hang out with your friends and do your homework. Big fan. Is that where all the nerdy kids went on their dates to Panera bread? Excuse me, we were very cool. And we did not have dates. We were, in fact, doing our homework. Emphasis on, emphasis on past tense. Yeah. I'll, 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 I, I obviously show my allegiance by being in a paneer bread right now. So, Well, obviously, it's a, it's a prize option when you're driving across Long Island. I think that's fair. I also spent a lot of time in paneer breads in high school, 10 years or so before Quinta did. Uh, and when I was there, I would eat constantly all the time. French onion soup in a bread bowl. And I'm just like, in yes. hindsight, God, that's a hell of a lot of food for a person, even an 18-year-old boy driving around. But I remember eating it while driving down the road, which I don't know how that I did this. living dangerously. <laughs> it was. Wow. I wasn't sure. Maybe they gave me like a big fat straw, like a Slurpee or a Boba <laughs> tea. I don't know how I pulled this off exactly. But I distinctly remember like having it on a saucer beside me, pulling it up, eating a couple bites at a red light, putting it back down, going to the mall or something. I have that's no not, idea. For, for my ride home, I'm going to order french onion soup and give it a try in your honor yes. lots of napkins <laughs> that's all i'll say strongly recommend the napkins this is a torts hypo in the making i'm worried <laughs> don't choke on a crouton make sure it's not that hot Hello, everyone. Welcome to Rational Security 2.0. I am one of your co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson, and I am, as always, here with my other co-host, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. And Alan Rosenstein. Hello, hello. I, Scott, I, I love that I love that you switch up the order in which you introduce the co-host. I never I never know. Yes, on our toes. <laughs> I keep you on your toes, gotta keep you guessing, gotta know your own name on <laughs> command. <laughs> Good luck <laughs> with this podcast. <laughs> Uh, and we are thrilled to be joined by none other than Lawfarer's, one of resi- Lawfarer's many resident now security law experts, one of their particularly prolific and relied upon China experts and Taiwan experts, law professor extraordinaire, Julian Ku. Julian, thank you so much for joining us here today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a great honor. So remind me, have you been, we have to ask this question of everybody the first time they're on <laughs> Rational Security 2.0. Have you been on Rational Security before? Because you may have been in under the old regime. Uh, no, I was not. I, that's why I'm so honored, because the old regime did not favor me like the new regime does. So I'm glad the old regime is overthrown. So. Exactly. Take it as a sign of your youthful vigor that we, <laughs> the millennials, have roped you in, roped into you this role. Okay. Uh, we are excited to have you here uh, for what we are calling in your honor, and hopefully not offending you in any way, the Cuckoo Cachoo edition, uh, in honor of uh, that. That It is a wonderful 60s phrase, if you remember from the Mrs. Robinson song. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel, that means everything, evidently everything is copacetic. I thought it had something to do with a walrus because of that Beatles song, but no, it turns out it just means everything's copacetic. <laughs> but we're particularly lucky to have you here because we have a number of items relating to a country that you spend a lot of time watching uh, and talking about, and particularly on our podcast, uh, and that is China. Um, so without further ado, our topics for this week. Our first topic this week is, she loves me, she loves me not. 
At the Chinese Communist Party's 20th National Congress this past weekend, Chinese President Xi Jinping was able to not only secure his leadership over the party and country for a third consecutive five-year term, but successfully staff the party apparatus with his hand-picked loyalists. What does this Congress tell us about where China is headed under Xi's rule? Topic two, Huawei or the highway? Less than 24 hours after the close of the CCP Congress in Beijing, Attorney General Merrick Garland and his most senior deputies unveiled a series of indictments against Chinese nationals alleged to have engaged in covert campaigns to interfere with the investigation into Huawei, penetrate U.S. research institutions, and curb protests by Chinese nationals in the United States. Is the timing a message or just a coincidence? How should the Biden administration be responding? And topic three, fourth and Elon, guh. Despite his best efforts, Elon Musk's purchase of Twitter is set to go through this Friday. Just just to address the very quizzical looks I got from everybody else on screen right now, it's a sports reference, guys. It's about oh. football. Don't worry about it. Don't bring sports ball into this hallowed place, man. Come on. Just trust me on this one. It's, it's, it's okay at best, but it's a sports reference. But in the last few days, there have been mutterings that the purchase of Twitter by Elon might be subjected to a national security review by the federal government. Are these rumors just Elon's Hail Mary attempt at killing the deal, or might they have some merit? And what will either outcome mean for Twitter? For our first topic, Alan, let me hand it to you to get us started. Mm, and I will do what I always do when we have a, a expert joining us on the first topic, which is hand it over to our expert. Um, Julian, as, as our resident China watcher, uh, I'm very curious, you know, you know, before before we get into sort of one of the most important parts of the of the Congress that just happened, is there anything that surprised you about it? Or is this, you know, obviously in many ways, just the culmination of the last five years. Was it staged and managed to perfection as uh, these Congresses tend to be? Or was there, was there anything that was not obvious, you know, over the last few months that, that occurred? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the Congress is going to be stage managed perfectly every time. There's never any drama at these Congresses. So, it almost makes you wonder why anyone cares because we kind of know how things will go. And so I would say that the overall take is that there were no surprises. You know, Xi Jinping is now elected to a third term as general secretary of the Communist Party, which is the key position and really the key outcome. And that's the outcome we all knew was going to happen. You know, as a formal matter, I suppose, in theory, that he needs to go through the Congress to get that title. And he, he wants a ceremony and legitimacy of that process. But that's not a surprise. Yeah, so the only drama is a little bit of the personnel in terms of who is going to make it to the standing committee of the Politburo, which is the top seven leaders, essentially the the governing the cabinet, so to speak, of China. And there were there were um, some a little bit of drama and a few surprises there because it does signal some uh, direction. But in general, I would say it was a stage managed ceremony uh, where there was uh, not only were there, there it's not there so much that there were no surprises, but the, the, the black box of Chinese domestic politics is so black that it's, a, it's almost impossible to have any expectations ahead of time. People who've studied experts in Chinese elite politics uh, in the United States, because they're not allowed to do so in China, um, have a really hard time doing anything other than looking at the history of prior, you know, back in the 70s and 60s and 50s and the history of the Communist Party. But modern Chinese Communist Party politics is really, really difficult to penetrate. And so I'm not sure I was surprised or anyone was surprised, but I'm not sure anyone could have had any expectations exactly either, because there's no way to tell what the issues are, what the factions are, who's fighting over what. Um, it just kind of emerged at the, at the end with, OK, these are the people who are going to be running China for the next five years. And um, so that's sort of it's there's no drama. It's really a, we want to put our Western political lens on this. Um, and, the, and the Chinese like that, too. They invited all the foreign media to be there for the moment of the unveiling. They want to make it seem like it's a it's, a, it's an institutionalized normal process as to how we change governments in China. But really it's just um, it's just a reflection of the you know the, the bizarre nature of Chinese politics. We 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 spend all this time worrying about this Congress, but we have no idea what's shaping it. And when they present the people who are leaders, we don't we don't have any idea what they stand. We have some sense of it, but they don't have to make speeches, they don't have to issue party positions, they don't have to issue any policies. They just reveal we're in charge. And now this this group of people are in charge. And uh, good luck with that. Um, so it's, it's a kind of a frustrating. I, that's one of the reasons I don't like Chinese politics. <laughs> but I, because it's, it's impo well, not that I love American politics, but at least in American politics, we kind of know who the characters are and what they're fighting over. And in China, we don't even know that. Can, can I ask you to, to, to maybe this is unfair. But can I ask you to peer into the black box of Chinese politics? Just just for just for one more question. Okay. It's very black. But yes, I'll keep looking. 
Yeah, and, and maybe the answer is we don't know. But, but you know, obviously this is the culmination of the last 10 years, right, of the first two terms of, of Xi's rule. And I think what's most notable over this time period is how China, which for, you know, several decades had this clockwork transition of power, one you know, head after the other. And obviously there was some overlap and it's not quite as simple as it, as it, you know, as, as it might seem, but really after the, after Mao, after the cultural revolution and the excesses of that period in particular, the Chinese decided that you just, you cannot have this sort of one man autocratic rule in perpetuity. And in the span of a decade, Xi Jinping just completely obliterated that. And, and in a way that seemed to be without you know, kind of almost effortless at least from the outside you know presumably within the black box there was a lot going on there and i'm just you know curious before we kind of look forward it just might be useful to look back how did he achieve this i mean it it just seems like an amazing um, just an unbelievable achievement and you know, if you look at a comparison with russia for example right you know putin has done the same thing but of course russia never had this institutionalized process of transfer of power from the top um, whereas China did. And, and I'm just really curious what you think was the explanation for Xi's ability to to get rid of that so quickly. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a good this is a good point. I mean, why is it that she was able to pull this off? I think the first thing I would say is that the institutionalization process is not as um, orderly uh, as we might think, because it's really only lasted for the last two leaders. So beginning in, uh, in 1989, um, at the end of the after the Tiananmen massacre, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who was the leading force in Chinese politics and was really a one-man ruler, but without any of the formal titles, essentially selected the next leader, uh, Zhang Zemin, who uh, ruled from 1989 all the way until 2002. And that was, that was orderly only in the sense that Deng Xiaoping imposed this norm that you're going to retire after ten you know, two terms and Zhang Zemin abided by it. So really, if you really roll back the clock, the, this norm has only really been in existence since 2002 when Zhang Zemin stepped down and Hu Jintao took over. And Hu Jintao then you know, followed the norm in 2012 when he stepped down and Xi Jinping took over. So if you really take a look back at the history of Communist Party, it, the norm is not that long. <laughs> um, it's only lasted for the last two leaders, really. And so that makes it a little easier to break the norm. Now, the norm, the thing, the reason why it's a little shocking, though, is because this is one of the talking points of the Chinese Communist Party. And actually a lot of, not a lot, but some Western scholars, the Tom Friedman, if I could be China for a day, sort of people who are like, well, you know, maybe they have a better system because it's it's not a democracy, but it's kind of orderly and it has institutions and it's a meritocracy. There's a whole book about by this guy named a sociologist named Daniel Bell about the China model for political governance. Maybe it's better than democracy because it's much more orderly. And so th- this is a big selling point of the party. For them to blow past it and just dump it um, is something that is surprising and without any real explanation or justification. It's not like there's a crisis in 2022 or 2017 during the last Congress, which required them to, to, to discard the norm. There's no public explanation. What it goes back to, I think, is Xi Jinping really strategized <laughs> and decided that this is something he he wants to be remembered in Chinese history as not just one of the many leaders of the Communist Party, but as a leading figure uh, on the same level as Mao or Deng Xiaoping. And and I this is and he was able to do this because the one thing he did do very first years in office was launch a very popular anti-corruption campaign that very conveniently knocked out all his political rivals and destroyed all the factions and then created institutions uh, which allowed him to continue to threaten or arrest political enemies under the guise of corruption. In fact, a lot of them were corrupt, <laughs> but that wasn't why the only reason they were being. So that was an incredibly powerful tool for him to either suppress, scare, or just lock up his enemies. And that was, so it doesn't seem public because, you know, who just arrests them and say, well, there's corruption, they confess, they're disappeared, right? But so, slowly over time, all of the political factions were reduced and destroyed until it's like the frog. We didn't even realize it. All the other factions <laughs> were being boiled to death. <laughs> And now they're all of a sudden he's in charge forever. So I think on my own take, which is so my take, is that this is his ambition that's driving this, and and that the party's institutions were not that strong. That that's why it was so easy for him to let blow through. There's really no external constraint on him. It was just political factions that he was able to destroy, and now he's in charge. So you you mentioned Hu Jintao, Xi's predecessor, and I wanted to ask you about that because you'd, you'd said at the beginning there wasn't a lot of drama, but of course there there was this very strange moment where Hu is kind of 
ushered off stage, uh, sitting right next to she seemingly unwillingly. And I, I've seen a lot of confusion and speculation. It seems like the conclusion insofar as there is one is we have no idea what happened. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm curious what you made of that. I know there's some suggestion that, you know, maybe who is is not well and there were concerns over him uh, showing symptoms of dementia or somehow messing things up. Is this a power play on she's part? What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, my own take is that he's not, uh, they did this in public and so there was, it was meant to, so it was either meant to send a message or that it truly was just like he, he got sick and confused and left. I doubt that um, only in the sense that it's so well choreographed. <laughs> this whole thing is choreographed down to the last minute. It's just, if he was sick and was going to be unwell, it just seems odd that they would have put him in that position to be publicly sort of humiliated like that. But I suppose that's possible. So my own sort of leaning is to always assume the worst <laughs> and that this is kind of, uh, you know, maybe an effort to, to signal that we really are in uncharted territory. The former leaders who served as some sort of institutional check don't matter anymore. Like they're not going to be in jail or anything, but they literally are being pushed off the stage. And, and I think uh, whether it was intentional or not, it's a convenient symbol for Xi. Now, having said all that, they censored it in China. So we've been able to like take different angles. All the <laughs> we have different like the Pruder film. We look at what well, was he was he touching, what was the paper he was looking at, and they blew up the paper. And they, we do all these things. None of that's going on in China, which is a signal that they maybe don't want it to be. Maybe it was an accidental symbol, and they don't want to create some sort of. Um, confusion within China as to what this means. So it is a little bit un unclear. There's also the possibility that it's a signal to the party elites, but not to the general public, which is, I think, a, to me, very, because that's the only the group that really matters are the party elites. And um, and if it's, and the message to them is, look, I'm, you know, don't mess with me. I'm in charge. And the former leaders are not, are no constraint on me. So I do think though he is kind of sick though. But the, again, we don't know because we know nothing about even the former leaders. They go back into their dark holes, and we, we lose touch with them. The The people who were associated with Hul, in other words, some of his protégés, did not make it to the standing committee. And some of them just got dropped completely from even the central committee, which is the 200-person group that selects the Politburo, which is the 25, which then selects the seven people who run things. And uh, some of his people got kicked out even from there. So if he had any political influence, it's all gone now anyways, whether or not they kicked him off the stage publicly. Yeah, I will say that was a moment that initially I read reports of and was like, well, it seems like this is the sort of thing the Western press tends to get very spun up about. And then actually, Julian kindly joined me and Sophia Yan to record an episode of the Lawfare podcast on this exact topic this morning, which we should plug, uh, which will be out the same day. As you want even more security. of me talking about this. <laughs> Exactly. A little more of a deeper dive. It's a phenomenal conversation. But even at that point, I hadn't actually gone back to watch the video. I ended up watching the video of Hugh Gentile's removal after this. And it seems very orchestrated because nobody else around them actually reacts in any meaningful way. All these, it's kind of on a dais where there's a number of other senior party officials. I'm not sure exactly what stage of the proceeding this was. And they all seem to be in the loop on what's going to happen because they all stay like almost robotically looking forward. And Hugh Gentile seems to resist for a minute then has some brief exchange with she and then gets kind of escorted out. But it, it had that feel of being very much orchestrated. So obviously it seems like a message to somebody. The other part, the other part that I thought was really interesting, and Julia, I'd be curious about your thoughts about this, is that a big deal was made, and it does strike me as, as a notable development in that one of the people who made the standing committee, one of these seven people who runs the country, is the party chief of Shanghai, who had come under, whose name's escaping me at the moment. Li Chang, Li Chang, yeah. Li Chang, Li Chang, thank you. And he had come under immense criticism because he was at the forefront of this very controversial zero COVID policy, which has imposed pretty draconian conditions very controversially on a lot of Chinese people. Uh, I mean, all Chinese people, people throughout the country, really, but particularly bad in Shanghai just because it's so dense. It's such a large city and have faced so many, so many problems because of that density in regards to managing COVID. And yet here he is on stage as one of these seven most senior people, mostly because of his proximity to Xi, which very clearly seems to me to send the message to the, the Chinese public, because that presumably wasn't wasn't censored, like people know who these seven people are, to say like, yeah, this policy is for real. And even though it's proven uncontroversial and people are objecting and people actually have protested, we're going to keep doing it, which I think is is a pretty notable message to send. It's, it's a sign that he does not seem to feel politically vulnerable, or at least doesn't want to project any political vulnerability in response to that, even though for the last few months, really last year, 
there's been a lot of chatter about, well, you know, they're probably worried about zero COVID and the reaction to it because it is proving publicly controversial in a way that few things have really in among the Chinese public. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, I would just say that uh, one footnote to this is that the the, dra- the one of the few dramas they have is at the very end, they reveal the standing committee of the Politburo, which is the general secretary, which is she, and then the six other people. But the order they come out on the stage is a sign of their power. So it literally is like, you know, she comes out first and then whoever's next is everyone understands is number two and then number three, number four. So they have that completely stage managed even to that point. And like, I don't know why that is. That's the way it is. And Lee Chong is number two. Like he came out second. Right. So not only is he a protege raised to the standing committee, but he is the protege who's going to be the prime minister now, most likely than not, because that's always usually how they do it. And that means that, so it's not just saying, I think this guy's really important. I want to raise him to the highest level. I want him to be num- my number two. I want him to be my partner. The prime minister kind of is typically the sort of the second in command in the Chinese hierarchy. And 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 that's a, and so that I think you're right, is the guy who was really castigated for the botched uh, COVID lockdown in Shanghai this spring, which it wasn't so much the lockdown as the um, lack of food. <laughs> Like people, that's the part that people understand. People in China can handle lockdowns. The starving part was not so great. And, and that's where he was really faulted because people in China like the lockdowns in the sense that they want to prevent the virus from spreading, but they expect the government, if they're going to lock them down to at least give them access to food or some other, or provide the necessities to survive the lockdown. And Shanghai was not prepared. And, and therefore that's why it was much worse in Shanghai than any other parts, than other parts of China. Also people in Shanghai, complain a lot because they feel like they're better than the rest of China. <laughs> and so it's kind of like New York City. It's like, how could, it's the New York of China. Like, how could, yeah. well, I understand why Arkansas will be suffering, but New York, how could New York be suffering? That's sort of the attitude in Shanghai. And so that's why it was, and, and all the, for, a lot of, there's like 300,000 foreigners living there. And so they complain bitterly as well. So, but having said that, it was botched, right? And so therefore, you know, and so and people, and he's in charge and it's his fault. But the policy is what's what matters and he was enforcing the policy that she wanted and she's rewarding him for enforcing the policy that he wanted and and i think you're right i think once the commit the standing committee was revealed to my surprise uh the hong kong stock market just collapsed right just went down like it was already terrible it's now down it's down 40 percent like in the last five years or something it's down to like where it was in 1997 when they handed over like it's just it's just falling apart and the reason is because the hope and Chinese stocks on the U.S. stock exchange um, all collapsed as well. Chinese companies, even Starbucks took a hit because they have so many stores in China. And why? Because they know zero COVID is not going away, right? It, not only is it not going away after the party Congress, as some people hoped, it's not clear it's going away at all. <laughs> like maybe not even until the summer or next year or something. Like this could go on for much longer than people had assumed. So... So that's that's a bad sign, and that's but that's and that's a symbolism of having this guy as, as number two. So so we've talked a lot about what the Congress and and the speech mean for Chinese domestic politics, but I also want to take a moment to to think about sort of what it signals for the rest of the world. Um, there's a nice New York Times write up of it, and it points out that there are these two phrases that have been in these Congress speeches, you know, over and over again for the last several decades. Uh, you know, first that China is in a quote period of important strategic opportunity and also that peace and development remain the themes of the era. And these are, you know, two stock phrases that have constantly appeared so much so that when they did not appear in Xi's speech, uh, everyone took notice, assuming that this was signaling a more confrontational uh, posture from China, maybe signaling something about, you know, China-Taiwan relations. And I'm just curious, you know, for you, Julian, in particular, but but also for for uh, you, Scott and Quinta, you know, whether you think that, again, we've learned anything new about China and in particular Xi's perspective on relations between China and the rest of the world, or or whether or not the kind of increasing frigidity of that relationship is uh, is just something that has been underscored by the, the uh, Congress. I, I think you're right to take party speak very seriously. Like it's like a it's like the worst kind of Chinese is communist party Chinese because it's, but because they repeat themselves constantly and they use these really turgid phrases, but when they don't use it, that's why you, you, you people notice. And it's all signaling to other party members and, 
And so that's the right analysis. And there's a lot more. There's like, this is the one thing people do become experts on is reading Chinese Communist Party sort of documents and analyzing these sorts of textual clues. And I, I think that's true. I think what I would take, my own take would be that this is, uh, that the direction's already set. And then by taking these phrases out, it's signaling there will be no change in direction. Like that this is now going to be, like there might've been a sense that, well, we'll keep it in because maybe things will change and we'll, you know, we'll, we'll go to a different direction. We'll go back to the peace and development sort of notice. But taking this out is, uh, is a signal that they don't think this is something that's going to be part of their, their sort of general principles that will guide their conduct in the future. I think this is already reflected in the, in the attitudes of the Chinese government and the policies they've been adopted. But what this signals is that there's no reason to think they're going to change it. That they're that it stay the course. Um, I think the I was saying the analogy to this is she has won an unprecedented third term if he had a real election, <laughs> but he has a political mandate similar to that if he won a third term. Like, and so he's and so what does he feel when he's winning a third term? I'm like in charge of the world. I'm the king of the world, literally, <laughs> and I can now do all the things I never got around to my first two terms. And look at this great political support I've had. So there's no reason to think he's gonna back out, rethink, or reconsider any of the approaches they've taken so far. Well, from Chinese policy in China to Chinese policy in the United States, let's go to our second topic, because we saw a pretty notable development being put forward, a notable event, I should say, being hosted by U.S. government officials here in Washington, D.C., not 24 hours, maybe it's maybe it between 24 and 48 hours after the close of the party congress in Beijing. And that was a pretty major press conference held on or about 1.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern time yesterday on Monday of this week, where we saw Attorney General Garland, FBI Director Chris Wray, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, really the highest echelons of the Justice Department, not people usually she trotted out for most press conferences, hold a press conference on a series of indictments they have brought down, focusing on who else? China. Specifically, charging a number of Chinese nationals with a variety of crimes, some for taking actions to kind of coerce kind of Chinese nationals back to China, deterring them, intimidating them. Some focused on trying to penetrate U.S. research institutions and entities through a shell a company, actually a shell think tank um, that they were kind of posing as and trying to use money to buy influence and potentially get access to information. And some other folks actively involving themselves in different ways to obstruct the ongoing investigation into Huawei, the very notable, prominent major telecommunications company that has a very close relationship to the Chinese regime uh, and whose treatment at the hands of American and Canadian law enforcement officials um, has been a constant point of political tension with China over the last year or two. Quinta, let me hand it over to you to get us started on this. How should we be reacting to these indictments? What is the role that they're playing? What is the Justice Department signaling here? And where does it fit into this broader picture of U.S.-China relations? Is this a response to the Party Congress? Is it just coincidental timing? Or is this a sign of kind of more things to come from the Justice Department? Yeah, the timing is definitely interesting because the Justice Department had teased it, um, saying that there was going to be, I think it was a, an announcement on a significant national security matter or something along those lines relating to uh, influence efforts by uh, a foreign power. I'm paraphrasing here, but that led a lot of folks to wonder whether this would have to do with uh, efforts to meddle in the upcoming midterms. Obviously, it did not. I think important context is that this is, I believe, the fourth charging document in uh, U.S. cases against Huawei uh, since 2020. So there were two indictments that came down in or in 20, 2019 and then 2020 uh, that had to do with efforts by alleged efforts by Huawei to steal trade secrets from T-Mobile. There was a second indictment uh, alleging that Huawei had essentially attempted to violate uh, sanctions on Iran. And then there was a superseding indictment uh, that added additional charges, uh, including accusing Huawei of doing the RICO, as, as we say in the legal profession. Uh, so so this, this indictment is kind of stacked on top of that. Um, and it has to do with alleged efforts by Huawei to 
essentially uh, interfere in one of these criminal cases. Uh, there's essentially, it turns out that if you are the Chinese government and you think that you have found an informant uh, with access to ongoing, highly sensitive, uh, national security relevant criminal proceedings in the U.S. government who is willing to pass you a page from a classified document every now and then against the prosecution into Huawei, probably that person is actually a U.S. government informant and you should not try to, for example, get them on a payphone, which doesn't even exist, that does appear in the indictment. So it's definitely, you know, there's, there's a, a rollicking spy story in here. Um, I think what, what jumped out at me was how clumsy, in some ways, the efforts are as described in here. Um, but I mean, the, the sort of serious takeaway is, I think, Jill, and you should correct me if I'm wrong, this is one of the most direct lines that the U.S. government has been able to draw between Huawei and Chinese intelligence, um, because it's alleging specifically that Chinese intelligence is conducting this work on behalf of Huawei, whereas in the the previous indictments, it was focused really on Huawei specifically. And so that does strike me as a, a escalation of, of U.S. tactics here. Um, I know Alan has has thoughts about the sort of this way of using criminal charges um, as kind of international politics. But Julian, as an initial matter, I'm curious what you make of it. Yeah, I think that's right. I think the, um, what's striking about this is that they charged and named two Chinese intelligence agents, right? So the, the Ministry for State Security, the equivalent, uh, the, the Chinese KGB, I guess, except they're not as slick as the KGB because they just send you Bitcoin and ask you for documents, which is essentially what they did here. <laughs> or that, you know, they, they came out with cash and, you know, they, but yeah, I think they have, I think the most notable thing to me was that the U.S. government alleged in its arrest warrant that, you know, that the, these agents had stated that we want this information because we're talking with Huawei and they want to know more. <laughs> and so the whole sort of conversations now between the, uh, the alleged intelligence agents and the U.S. informant was, we're getting this stuff because we, Huawei wants it. We're doing this on behalf of Huawei. Now, what they don't have is anything from Huawei itself. What they have are communications from the Chinese intelligence agent saying they're doing this for Huawei, which is the closest thing we have to a direct government link. And, and pretty strong evidence, but it's not quite there yet. I think the, the bigger policy, it's not a legal problem, but it's a policy problem. The reason why the U.S. government is suspicious of Huawei is because the U.S. government has alleged it's effectively a tool of the Chinese government. But the controversy has been Huawei and their many, many lobbyists <laughs> and their very well-heeled big law, law firms <laughs> uh, have argued, no, it's, it's just a private company. It's just a private company. And you're just making all this stuff up, U.S. government, as part of your uh, anti-China campaign. And so the U.S. government has never really stated what their evidence is. But this is one example where they're getting closer to it. Well, why would the Chinese intelligence agents be bribing people in the Eastern District of New York U.S. Attorney's Office why would they do this unless on a case involving the prosecution of Huawei if they weren't actually working for Huawei, right? And if, they, if, they, if the U.S. Chinese government doesn't care about Huawei, why would they be doing this? And I think that is, that's why this case is important. Um, they didn't actually arrest the agents, which I think is a little frustrating. <laughs> so I think that, that, therefore, it does sound like it's more of a signal. And it's a signal. Maybe that's what Alan's... I mean, I'm not sure how useful these signals are, but it's a statement that we have the goods, we're watching you, and... Um, and we know what you're up to, Huawei, and maybe there'll be more to come on this. But this is this is pretty striking, and people should be asking Huawei, and their many lobbyists, <laughs> and the big law firms that they uh, that defend them, um, you know, whether this is something they're worried about or whether it's something they knew about. Remember, that could be Huawei's lawyers <laughs> are the ones who want because this is about the prosecution in the Eastern District. This is the type of information you would pass on to Huawei's lawyers, who are U.S. lawyers. Um, I can't, I don't know which firm it is, but it's. It's a big, it's one of the big law firms. They, you know, they are, uh, you know, did you know about this? Yeah, I, I look, I, I, I don't want to get too grumpy about this. Prosecutors prosecute and, and there's nothing wrong with prosecutors prosecuting, even if it doesn't necessarily solve the underlying problem. You know, there are plenty of other reasons to do prosecutions. I think the signaling that Julian refers to is an important one. It takes a little bit of the wind out of the sails of the Chinese, right? Xi Jinping is busy becoming, you know, the God King of the world uh, <laughs> in Beijing, but he, you know, but his intelligence apparatus is, you know, can't even avoid being, being picked up on, on uh, these kinds of charges. Right. And, and maybe the signaling is also useful in that, you know, the more that the United States can both 
embarrass China globally with respect to this issue, but also just have a stream of unclassified information that goes out about how the Chinese cannot be trusted. And, you know, if they're doing this stuff in the United States and they're doing this stuff in Australia and they're doing it in Europe, they're doing it everywhere else. Uh, so in that sense, I think it's all you know perfectly fine. You know, where I'm skeptical of is the idea that this will actually change Chinese behavior. And, and I think the problem is that, you know, because prosecutions are often intended to or at the very least, they're often seen as having a kind of deterrent effect. When they don't have a deterrent effect, it can actually make the prosecuting party here, the United States itself look somewhat weak, right? You know, the, the United States is putting all these resources on this problem. Uh, and is it really going to change Chinese behavior? So, so that's why I'm, I'm somewhat skeptical uh, of, uh, of this, but it certainly makes for interesting New York Times copy. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. So I share a lot of, I think, the skepticism we hear about speaking indictments in uh, in other contexts. Like this comes up a lot. I think Jack Goldsmith has written for Lawfare for this and other folks have commented about this in the context of like Russian disinformation campaigns. We're indicting a bunch of, uh, you know, hackers and programmers sitting in, you know, St. Petersburg who will never come under federal jurisdiction. And we're kind of just giving away that a bunch of information about them. But this is different because these are actually U.S.-based operations. And I actually think these sorts of indictments, even though they only actually arrested two people involved here, neither of whom looked like they were so much direct government agents as kind of the local recruits of government agents, although we don't know exactly. Um, and they also, I should note, there's a couple of people identified as co-conspirators here who are U.S. nationals that probably will be indicted at some point. My guess is they're still cooperating and figuring out the scope of that before they they finalize whatever charges they're going to bring. The fact that you actually bring this information forward, make it public, really does send a signal to some extent to China because it shows, hey guys, your statecraft's not up to snuff. Like we've got a certain ability here. There's a very careful balancing act that has to be struck between giving away your ability to bust these operations and like signaling and letting them know how to adapt and that they can and need to adapt. But then also signaling, hey, you guys should may want to ratchet down a little bit on some of these activities. This is just a, probably a slice of what we know or have the hints of this is what we're willing to burn. How much more do we know that's actually out there? And given that you fell for this, how much more are you falling for on other operations? And then equally important, I think it's also important as a signaling effort for people who could get caught up in these schemes in the United States to various extents. I think it's important for Chinese nationals who are resident here and are worried about intimidation from the Chinese government to have that. I think it's very important for them to show the United States government has their back in exercising their constitutional rights as residents of the United States, if not nationals of the United States. I think it's also important for people in sensitive positions to be kind of aware of some of these risks and know that the Justice Department takes it seriously. That latter incentive particularly like ties back to the China initiative, the really controversial Justice Department initiative started under the Trump administration targeting academics with ties to China. I think there's a lot wrong with that. It was way too heavy handed, frankly, in my view, in terms of how it framed its scope and basically it's like trying to deter and chill all sorts of engagement with different uh, Chinese and China adjacent institutions. That probably goes too far. But I do think it's something to be said here. Hey, if it looks like you're being asked to do things that are inappropriate, the FBI will find out about it and we'll bring charges over it. I, and here, when you're talking about a US-based operations for most of these, I actually think that is really important to do these things, even if you can't arrest most of these people. And I will note, you arrest a bunch of particularly like direct Chinese operative intelligence agents, you have a diplomatic incident on your hands. And I'm not terribly surprised that this may have been executed in a way that they didn't arrest any of those people. Again, they appear to have arrested primarily kind of like the third-hand hires uh, of 
actual like intelligence operatives, because that invites a crackdown on U.S. personnel in China uh, or a potentially diplomatic incident. And it raises the threshold in a lot of complicated ways, particularly coming off the party Congress when all eyes are kind of on uh, Xi and his assertions of strength. So I'm not surprised they didn't take a step that provocative, but it's still a pretty provocative step and an important one and notable one in my view. Can I just put a word in for um, spies in Long Island? <laughs> um, to talk about that. Because actually a lot of these incidents took place in the Eastern District in the Chinese community. And the, one of the two who were arrested, the, I saw them on my local news, they were arrested, they're in, they live in a Tony uh, Long Island suburb. Uh, Alan, you'll know this, Roslyn, right? Roslyn, fancy suburb, beautiful home, nice middle class, uh, up, way upper middle class north of her home. And they're frog marched out by the FBI, right? Because they're agents of the Chinese government. Um, I think that kind of messaging for the domestic audience, and by domestic audience, I mean uh, Chinese nationals who either would be willing to work for the Chinese government or who are afraid of being spied on by the Chinese government, that it is important for domestic purposes for the U.S. government to signal, we are going to do something about this stuff. And they've already done that with attempts to intimidate a congressional candidate, also in Long Island. There's a Tibetan um, police officer who also lives on Long Island, but he works at NYPD, who was arrested because he was spying on behalf of China, allegedly, on the dissidents here. <laughs> so, the, so a lot of the Chinese-American dissidents, are they don't know who to trust because who's on which side, right? So these, I think these sorts of uh, prosecutions are valuable, and they actually do tend to arrest people when they're here. But I, I, do, yeah, I do wonder, though, about the, 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 the cat and mouse game with the actual Chinese intelligence agents, whether they'll... You know, it is dangerous to arrest them. We saw how seriously China takes, um, they're willing to take hostages, right? They might not even just take U.S. Um, spies. They might actually just hi- take random U.S. academics, right? Which uh, would not be good for people like us, I guess. So um, so that would be bad, right? So so that's scary. But um, but we we do need to signal that we take this seriously. And, the, and I, think it's, I think it's probably, generally speaking, a good thing. Uh, one final thing, I think, is political, which is that the, uh, the Republicans have made some criticize the Biden administration for dropping the China initiative. And I think the Biden administration probably is sensitive to that um, and that they want to show we're, we're, we're cracking down on what we think really, and w- which I agree, this is really serious stuff. It's not like random professor guy. <laughs> this is like what we really should be focusing on with our um, prosecutorial resources. And I think that it may not work with House Republicans, but it's something. Well, folks, Julian has to step away temporarily uh, before we turn to our third topic, but he's going to be back with us for object lessons. Until then, Quinta, let me hand it over to you to introduce our next topic of discussion. Uh, So from one quarter of the U.S. government uh, using uh, enforcement actions against China to another, uh, as listeners may have heard, there's been some minor drama around the question of whether everyone's favorite electric car impresario Elon Musk will be purchasing Twitter. Uh, And recently, Bloomberg had some interesting reporting that uh, U.S. officials were considering whether there should be national security review of this potential purchase, uh, presumably because of particular investors that Musk has in mind. Bloomberg also noted Musk's, and I'm quoting here, recent threat to stop supplying the Starlink satellite service to Ukraine and what they see as this increasingly Russia-friendly stance following a series of tweets that outlined peace proposals favorable to President Vladimir Putin. Uh, so this would definitely be a twist. There's been a lot of wrangling about the potential Musk Twitter purchase, but I, I think I can safely say that the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, CFIUS, had not been part of those discussions. But now it seems that CFIUS, too, may be throwing its hat into the ring, which would just be one more layer of chaos. So, Alan, let me turn it over to you to start off. Can you just explain what CFIUS is and what its its business here would be? And I should say before we go any farther that I believe that the White House has denied that it is looking into this option. Uh, so make of that what you will. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting just to start with that denial. What exactly that denial is of, I think if you parse the language, it's like there's no current ongoing CFIUS enforcement investigation or something, which of course leads a huge amount of, of ban, you know, space for what well, we're talking about it. Um, so I wouldn't read too much into that White House denial. Um, and, 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 uh, it would be ironic or I don't know, maybe, maybe it really would be seven dimensional genius chess. If the thing that allows Elon Musk to get out of his Twitter deal is, uh, CFIUS, which, which literally no one saw coming. So CFIUS, right, at the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States. So it actually started in the, I think the 70s or, or early 80s. Uh, no, I think the 70s. Um, just as an executive order about foreign investment in the United States that potentially poses national security risk. 
Um, and, and over the decades, uh, Congress has stepped in and it's essentially put into statutory authority kind of the main parts of CFIUS and added various complications to it. So the general idea is that if a foreign entity invests in the United States in a way that gives the entity control you know, over some company or something like that, and that raises national security risks, then the government has the ability to review that. Um, and potentially block the transaction, and even in some cases to go and unwind a transaction that has already occurred. And there are various complexities around the procedure uh, on that. But you know, the, what's notable about CFIUS is that the power that it gives to the executive branch is really very, very broad, because national security risk isn't really defined, and obviously can be defined in very broad ways. And also, there's no subject-specific limitation to CFIUS. So, for example, there's this other thing that we might get into called Team Telecom, or at least that was the name of it when I was in the government. I think it's been given a, a more official name these days. And that refers to you know similar national security reviews for uh, investments in entities that uh, have um, FCC licenses or, or might have an FCC license. By contrast, CFIUS just is general, right, to really any uh, su- subject area. And it's been used quite broadly, right, from you know, microchips to land near you know, military installations to sort of anything you can think of. Now, Grindr. Grindr, yeah, no, Grindr, absolutely. Uh, I think TikTok, right? I think TikTok was also a potential CFIUS issue. The, the thing about CFIUS, and that's important to appreciate, is that the, the entity has to be foreign. So Elon Musk is a U.S. citizen. And so this is important because the fact that Elon Musk may have weird opinions on the Russia-Ukraine war or you know, might want to curry favor with the Chinese over Taiwan, that by itself does not create jurisdiction for CFIUS. Right? The, it's not about transactions in the United States that cause national security risk. It's transactions that give a foreign entity control. So the reason that CFIUS is potentially at play here is because Elon's investment backers, um, who he has brought on either because he doesn't want to just literally use his own Tesla money to buy Twitter, uh, or because, and this is the seven-dimensional chess version, he's trying to trigger CFIUS review, are you know a bunch of, of Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds. I forget exactly which country. And that's what gives rise to CFIUS potential jurisdiction. Now, the, the, the tricky thing here, and I suspect folks in the US government are squinting very hard, and, and this may be one reason why CFIUS does not ultimately get involved, is that if your argument is that CFIUS applies because Elon has foreign investors on this deal, but your concern is not actually about the foreign investors per se, it's actually about Elon, right? Specifically, and not Elon's relationship with the foreign investors, but you know his relationship with China and Russia, that's going to be a little awkward when potentially this is challenged in court, um, which CFIUS transactions can be. So that, that's sort of one wrinkle that, that I see. Um, you know, I, I think what this raises is, and it's unfortunate because CFIUS, I think, is a bit of a red herring in that respect, is, is Twitter, and I guess other social media platforms, are they so important that the government should take a potentially more active role in looking at who buys them and for what purposes, whether or not those people are you know, foreign investors or, you know, U.S. persons. Uh, And I think that is what this issue brings into sharp relief. I think that's right. And it's worth making a note here. The cases that are like the closest parallels where we've seen CFIUS concerns, which I do think are actually Grindr and TikTok, uh, I think those are the two big kind of social media adjacent ones that we've seen become an issue here. Their biggest concern is because they're they are organizations that control a whole lot of very private, inf- particularly Grinder, frankly, a whole lot of private information about U.S. nationals, and that's one of the criteria that's been kind of fleshed out in the CFIUS regime in the last few years. That that was it was updated in 2018. It's a law called FIRMA. Um, we've seen actually the Biden administration just issue executive order, kind of further identifying areas that should be examined. And one of those relates to, uh, I think I think it's in the statute itself, actually relates to controlling lots of Americans' information. So, in the, and in that particular case, actually, that control threshold doesn't even apply the same way. It actually can apply in certain key cases to certain key industries, critical infrastructure, possession of this sort of information. You can have a concern or just because they're worried that just having a major foreign investor, even if they don't necessarily control it, gives them influence and might give them access to either critical technologies, critical infrastructure, or vast amounts of personal information. And all these changes really were enacted with, frankly, primarily China in mind, um, because we know there are cases of China hacking the GAO or scooping data, widely suspected scooping data off TikTok to help with identification, a variety of other purposes. And who knows what they could do for blackmail or other purposes with Grindr and other apps that track people's personal and sexual lives, uh, or could be used that way anyway. 
And so those fit in there. I don't think Twitter really does. I'd be curious about you all as Twitter users. I can't think of that much data Twitter has on me that's not public. I guess the viewing data, right? Like what I look at at Twitter. But a lot of Twitter data, at least up until recently, is like fairly open. Like you can see who I follow. You can see what I post, what I like. Other than browsing, which I don't know if Twitter keeps that data or not, although I suspect they could if they wanted to, I guess I'm less sure this is such a as much of a critical mass of personal data as those other companies. But maybe I'm off about that. What there do you, what DMs. Do you think yeah, I think DM, DMs are the big one, right? Um, people use them as if they're private, but they're you know they're not. Um, what links you send, what links you you click. I I mean I definitely know that if if this Twitter purchase goes through, I will be going through and probably deleting all of my DM chains. Quinta Quinta gets spicy. I can li- <laughs> listeners. I can I can Quinta gets Quinta gets real spicy. On Literally, the, the next thing that I was about to say was not that I have anything <laughs> sensitive in there. If you want to slide into Quinta's DMs, now yeah. now is the time to do it. Right, exactly. No, for that I use Signal, Um, but but no, but seriously, like I actually do think that there's a lot of stuff there. A lot of reporters use DMs uh, to reach out to sources and build relationships. I use them that way. I do think that there's a great deal there. Yeah, I mean, I I I I agree on on the DM point, though. Though I do think Scott's overall point is still correct, which is that I don't think the DM is the kind of the DMs are the kind of crown jewel of how a foreign acquisition or you know, foreign influence over Twitter could affect things. I, th- I think it's that, you know, it is the main public square. It is certainly the main public square for people who are super politically engaged and whether explicitly or I think more concerningly surreptitiously, right? If Twitter was used to even, you know, nudge a certain political or policy view, even a little bit in one direction or the other, that would be a, a pretty big, big concern, which, which frankly, I think raises another interesting issue of whether Twitter is, and if so, should be, should it be treated as an American company? And, and what even does that mean? You know, it, of course, it's, it's, you know, if Twitter really is a global public square, then it's a little weird for the United States to come in and say, well, we don't trust foreign investors in Twitter. If Twitter is by contrast, considered an American company, which, you know, it is by incorporation, then the United States has, I think, uh, a much clearer interest in controlling who owns and operates it. Um, I, that's personally my view. I've never thought of the idea as of these American companies as in any way creators of sort of neutral global platforms to be very meaningful. But I just, I just, I just think it is, is, I think it is interesting how the idea that Twitter is, and by extension, other social media platforms are a source of American national interest and can and should be treated as such is has like it's just not controversial in 2022 in a way that I think it would have really you know annoyed people even a few years ago you know who wanted to to sort of continue the the pleasant fiction that the internet is without borders blah 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 all that stuff. Well, th- but that's kind of actually though is it becomes a problem kind of under the statute I think another way this authority is usually applied because that sort of con- policy concern about the undue foreign influence in what is a public square like people often use to describe Twitter although I don't always buy into that particularly take on Twitter I don't think that's actually like a criterion that you could actually view things at under CFIUS. you could do the foreign control bit and that would require uh, you know, but that would require establishing whatever the control threshold is. It used to be actually like relatively high, I think like 50%. Now I think it's actually substantially lower, if I recall, after Firma, or at least can be. I can't 100% remember. But regardless, there has to be some threshold of foreign investment. But it doesn't fit in one of these categories that kind of does away with that. Those are, again, critical infrastructure based. Maybe the closest you could get is that kind of private information ground, collects presence of private data. But then you would really be using DMs to like, backdoor CFIUS review when you're really concerned about actually the public part uh, of its activities. Now, maybe there's a good argument to say that those are the sorts of things that we should have statutory, a greater scrutiny of from a national security basis. But I'm not sure it's actually built into the the current structure as I understand it. I mean, I guess my question is like, is this actually going to happen? Or are we all just blowing smoke here because this whole Elon acquisition has been wild and anything could happen? I mean, I'm curious for both your read on it. My sense was that it, it seems like kind of a long shot, but who who knows? 
I mean, I, I definitely think that you're right in that part of the reason we're talking about it and why it's our like fun third topic today is because it's an Elon Musk story and this whole saga has just been so just nuts. But but I do think it is at the very least an opportunity to reflect on the fact that who owns these platforms has profound national security implications. And and just to kind of circle back to the thing that the last point that, that Scott made. You know, I, I think the the statute doesn't define national security risks terribly broadly. So I think the issue is not can you argue that foreign control over the public square is a national security risk. I think the issue for the government is can you argue that the foreign control here, which is not by the Chinese or the Russians, right, but it's by these Middle Eastern sovereign wealth funds, that is the thing that will lead you to the national security risk. Now the government could argue, well, at a high le- high enough level of generality it's all foreign and it's all bad. And the government does get a lot of discretion and a lot of leeway from courts on national security decision-making. But that discretion is not, you know, unbounded. And so the record that the government would, the kind of administrative record that the government would develop would would be important for any CFIUS block to kind of, to stand up. Assuming, of course, that that that's not what, you know, Elon doesn't want, right? I mean, if he doesn't want to to overturn a CFIUS uh, order, then I guess he doesn't have to. Yeah, I mean, the other part that's kind of funky about this, that I think, is is interesting, is that there's actually, if Elon was concerned about this, or Twitter, the company was concerned about this, there's a mechanism they could have submitted this transaction for pre-approval. Basically, there's basically a, a safe harbor carve out in the statute. Um, I, I can't remember the exact parameters post firma, um, but I was I'm recalling from the pre firma days, which is when I used to deal with this stuff more regularly. It, my recollection is that basically you you get a pre-approval, and then you usually can proceed with confidence that they're not going to come back or at least a high degree of confidence that could come back and force you to divest because that's actually a power here. If after the fact, the government decides to investigate and says, oh, no, wait, actually, you cannot have this business and we're going to force you to divest, then those foreign property owners are required to divest under the statute. I think this actually may feed into Elon's calculus here, though, by the way, because okay, here's here's my wild hypothesis, but I'm going to throw it out there. Elon is supposed to close this deal on Friday if it comes apart. The way he gets out of the deal, he still faces heavy penalties, but the easiest way for him out of the deal if he loses his financing. And so if he's suggesting to his foreign investors, hey, no, you may buy this stuff only to have to be forced to divest it in the next several weeks. And by the way, I spent the last several months so savaging Twitter's internal operations and now raising all these concerns about foreign investment in it that it has zero value and you will be taking a massive hit. I kind of think Elon might be thinking some of these guys might back out, especially if he's not that enthusiastic about the deal anymore. And if they do, he may have contractual claims against them. He can use to recoup costs. There might be, it depends on the types of arrangements. I don't think we have details on that. I don't know them if we do. But so it, it may be a lot of what we know Elon does all the time, which is that he controls the market. He drives prices on things with these crazy rumors and using his large public platform. And I kind of suspect that's what he's doing here again. By this time, he's kind of doing it against his own partners, potentially, not just other consumers. That's my a little bit out there thesis as to why this might be a rumor that Elon seems to be promulgating more than anyone else, but I don't really know. Well, folks, that unfortunately is all the time we have for today, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder over the next week until we are back in your podcast feeds. Alan, what do you have for us in terms of object lessons this week? So my mother came to visit us uh, last weekend, which is great for many reasons, but one reason is that we can abandon the baby with grandma for an evening and go on a date. And so I took my wife on a dinner and a movie date, which is something I have not gotten to do in a long time. And we saw this amazing movie, Argentina 1985, uh, which is a kind of courtroom thriller drama uh, about the very, very famous trial of the Argentinian military government. So from the late 1970s through to sort of shortly after the Falkland War, you know, Argentina and Britain, Argentina was governed by a really brutal right-wing military dictatorship that waged a, a kind of dirty war against its citizens, killing you know, tens of thousands of, you know, some were guerrilla rebels, but lots were just regular old normal people and just, you know, trade unionists and, and other center-left folks. Uh, and then after the, when the civilian government was reestablished in the early 1980s, it put these people on trial uh, in this incredibly dramatic trial. And they, they made a movie about it. And it's, it's just, it's amazing, right? You learn enormous about this fascinating and very sad and 
very hopeful in other ways period in Argentinian history. The performances are great. They, they did a beautiful job with the, with the settings. So you really get the sense of like Buenos Aires in the, in the mid 1980s. It's just, it's a fabulous, fabulous movie. So highly recommended Argentina, 1985. Well, thank you, Alan. Uh, Quinta, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I am also bringing a recommendation for a piece of art that has to do with uh, wars and violence because I love to be cheerful. I have been reading a novel by the Ukrainian writer uh, Andrei Kurkov. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It's called Gray Bees. And it is, uh, I think it was, it was published a few years ago in English. It is set, obviously, before the start of the current war in Ukraine. Uh, and is about a beekeeper in the gray zone between Ukrainian forces and the separatist Russian-backed and funded forces in the Donbass region, and is about sort of what it was like, again, before the outbreak of the current war, to live in this sort of strange place uh, in in the midst of this conflict. Um, the the writing is is really beautiful. It has a very distinct sense of humor uh, that I think will be familiar to people who have, have read other works of literature from this area of the world. Um, I'm only partway through it, but I'm enjoying it a great deal. And if you, like me, have been looking to consume more works of art by Ukrainian writers and artists, I would highly recommend giving this one a look. Well, for my object lesson, I am once again eschewing literature and the written word, uh, which I don't engage with by choice most of these days. Uh, instead, I am going back to that nice two-dimensional friend of mine, the television screen, because I had a phenomenal watching experience this past weekend. And really, actually, I think one of the best television shows I've ever seen um, that I wrapped up the finale of just the first season. I still have one and a half, soon to be two more seasons to watch. And that is the show For All Mankind on Apple TV. Uh, it is a show that is takes a hypothetical scenario in which what basically essentially what if the Soviet Union, not the United States, won the space race and got to the moon first. And it's actually even more specific. This didn't actually come up in the show, but they've talked about it. They actually hinge the counterfactual on the death of one specific Soviet scientist like six years before the first episode where he died in the real world in an accident. And by doing so, set the Soviet rocket program back by years. And they're saying, well, what if he didn't die? And then extrapolate just from that one fact onwards. Um, but the first episode takes place right around the time of the real world moon landing. And then it goes from there. And then each season takes a different decade in this counterfactual American history. So I just finished the 1970s. Next season's going to be 1980s, 1990s. It is just absolutely phenomenal. It is really well acted. Great, great kind of ensemble cast bringing together lots of different story arcs, plot arcs that like intersect with American politics, intersects with social issues, you know, LGBT issues, racial integration, lots of things that are kind of coming to fore in this era. It shows how they kind of integrated with the Cold War and with the space race to some extent as kind of like one major reflection of the Cold War that's particularly prominent in this counterfactual plot line just absolutely amazing. And then the whole first season, the whole first five or six episodes is like very intricate, well done character building and world building. Really interesting. Uh, stuff happens, but it is kind of like slow and it takes a little bit. And then the last three episodes are just like edge of your seat excitement. Absolutely phenomenal. Super interesting. My wife and I stayed up to 1.30 in the morning just being able to finish it on Saturday night, which we do not do lightly uh, with a one and a half year old at home. And so we were just floored by it. It was just absolutely phenomenal. So I cannot endorse it enough. Everyone should check out For All Mankind on Apple TV at your first opportunity. And it's got great sci-fi because it actually deals with like all the moon stuff that we didn't do at the time about like what happens if people want to live on the moon or spend more time on the moon. We kind of gave up on the moon as soon as we got there and haven't really been back hardly ever. Now we're trying to learn how to do all this stuff again. That's what the Artemis mission is about. And the Chinese are also now also trying to figure out how do we find water on the moon, build habitations on the moon. And that's stuff they're dealing with here. So there's a lot of lessons to be kind of ported over if you are like me, a space nerd, and always following what's happening in our nearest extraterrestrial uh, neighbor, the moon. So that's my endorsement for this week. Julian, you can bring us home. What do you have for us in terms of object lessons? So I this came up because my daughter, it's not really timely. My daughter has been doing world history and and uh, she's she was she did a unit on Rome and I was I was kind of excited. I'm like, oh, and she was just kind of like, yeah, Rome, like, you know, moving on, right? So uh, but then it got I actually was thinking I, I've been thinking a lot about Rome recently because you know, like it's I feel like we're 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 kind of in that decadent phase of the late emperors where we're falling apart and just spinning up different emperors here and there. I know so, I am. <laughs> um, and I think well, I, I, I'm more thinking of America and empires and 
the Chinese Empire, but the American Empire. The Chinese think we're the the late Roman Empire. So, anyways, I was I ran across a show with uh, the historian Mary Beard, who um, is called Rome Empire Without Limits, where she kind of tries to. She's a serious scholar of classical studies at Cambridge, but uh, she does this show, um, and she's trying to contextualize Rome in a way that is not too cheesy. Like she doesn't try to overclaim, like we're just like Rome or something like that, or Romans. Are, but I think she tries to give Rome. A, a different feel from what you read in the history books. And I think, and what's great about the show is that she, um, they don't have fancy graphics. It's just her going to different sites <laughs> and like a tour guide, uh, a really, really good tour guide, literally taking you up to like this old object and translating the scripture and telling the stories behind it. And, um, and she goes to all these great parts of the Roman empire. You don't think about like Algeria or Turkey or, you know, and um, Scotland. And, and it's just, a, it's, it's a great, thoughtful way to think about Rome. Um, and which I think it's, is really important. It does sort of, um, if you think about it more, really did shape a lot of the ways we think about things in the West. Um, so I endorse, it's called Rome Without Limits. It's streaming on Amazon Prime. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, I, yeah, it's not for all mankind, but it's, it's good. It's worth a watch. That's a great suggestion. I have actually watched excerpts from this uh, a couple of years ago, and I don't think I've, I'm not sure I ever finished the series, but I really remember quite enjoying it. So that's a great suggestion. I did think you were going to doors for a half second there, the HBO BBC series Rome, which is also phenomenal, but not something you should watch with your school aged daughter by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, so I'm glad we avoided that bullet, but I'll throw that in there too. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. As always, Rational Security 2.0 is, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. Follow us on Twitter at RATL Security and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links and past episodes for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. And be sure to sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. We are once again edited by the wonderful Jen Pacha Howell. On behalf of my co-hosts, Alan and Quinta, and our special guest, Julian Koo, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Until then, goodbye. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60.